take it a little easy we had a pretty heavy um, discussion or series on swallowing physiology and while we certainly as Alicia always says went off the rails and made some jokes it was very specific information a little bit more of a tutorial this is a little different um, right Alicia we're gonna talk a little bit about advancing your education in a formal way beyond your master's which can be getting a research degree or a clinical doctorate Lately, that's sort of the new fad. It's like, I feel like I've maxed out in clinic. I feel like there's so much more I need to know, especially people who have <clears throat> practiced for a while and they realize there are way more questions than answers and that they can sometimes get a little bit frustrated by, well, how do I advance my knowledge if I've taken all the high-level CEU courses and I got my um, board recognized, okay, I'm gonna get this wrong, BRS. Yes. Not, they changed it to BCSS. Yeah. Why can't I get that together? It's like greater than less than. I struggle because so it much. used to be board recognized swallowing specialist, and, and then they changed board certified board certification in swallowing and swallowing disorders. Right. Well, obviously, I I'm struggling with the term, but the important thing is most of you guys know what that is, and the you know if you've sort of done all that, a lot of people are sort of like, what else can I do to learn? I'm I need more information and I, I would like more qualifications. So, uh, Leash, you just got your PhD recently mm -hmm. after practicing clinically for a while. And I've had a PhD since 2005, so I'm sort of an old <laughs> senior person over here. Um, maybe you can start by, by saying why you decided that you were going to do something more, whether and why you went with research versus a clinical doctorate. Sure. I think it's important to step back just a little bit and um, make a correlation between, you know, there was a reason that we decided to choose this topic after doing the physiology series and it aligns with my own trajectory and wanting to get a PhD is that as I was practicing as a speech pathologist, which many of you know by now, um, I practiced for about five years before deciding to go back and get my PhD. and. I started to just become really aware of the things that got me really excited in the field. And for me personally, hearing about and learning more about the mechanism of swallowing. So if we would have done this physiology series 10 years ago, for me, that would have just really um, got me really, really excited because that's what I was starting to realize that I had a lot of passion for was with my patients, it was really exciting to better understand why does this person have dysphagia or why does this treatment work? What's the underlying physiology? And wanting to answer those questions and wanting to better understand the mechanism is what really made me feel like, okay, I need to do something beyond what I'm doing every day in clinical practice. Um, I want to learn more. I want to understand more. I want to answer more questions. So, And you, we've also noticed that ever since the Swallowing Physiology series, we've been getting a lot of questions and mm -hmm. interest from people who've been um, messaging us to say, wow, that was really fascinating. How do I learn more? Because we'll throw out papers and 
ideas because you know in an hour it's hard to cover every possible topic which is why we had what five or six episodes in that sure. swelling physiology series and we just skimmed the surface and on oh that. my god we basically just sort of went off what, what we already know off the top of our head we didn't even deep dive into any particular paper or anything so i think what it's done is triggered a lot of interest among people among, among clinicians who realize there is a world out there mm-hmm. of data that comes that backs the concepts that we're putting out here. We might say something as simple as pharyngeal shortening, but then we can point to five or six papers that suggest that that's a thing. We don't just throw it out there. So that level of interest has made us think, we now know a lot of people are like primed for more information. Like, well, how how do I learn this stuff? And you and I learned it in our PhDs, really, Mm -hmm. which is not the best place to learn it. Really should learn it before. So the question is, how do people further knowledge? And one way to talk about it is in these formal pathways, which could be a clinical doctorate or research degree, and maybe we can follow up with other ways to sort of have expert-like levels of knowledge or verging on that without the need to go back to school. Yeah, absolutely. So if you're somebody who, um, you know, feels a little stagnant in clinical practice and wanting to acquire more tools to be able to answer some questions about your patients or about how swallowing works in general, then you may have been toying with the idea of what path do I go? Some people are just very satisfied acquiring tools to be able to read papers more efficiently and can go online and just sort of take tutorials and learn anatomy and physiology a little bit better. And those are all great pathways um, to continue to acquire knowledge. It doesn't, we're not trying to say that, hey, if you want to learn more, you need to take these formal steps. Um, staying in clinic and just using what's at your fingertips is a great way to just continue to acquire knowledge throughout your entire career. But um, there are formal pathways such as getting a PhD or research degree and a clinical doctorate that can take you on a more structured pathway to acquire the tools, mm-hmm. I would say, to help answer questions that are difficult to answer without a certain knowledge of how research is conducted and how to control for variables and how to understand um, these mechanisms that we work with every day. So can I just suggest that perhaps we should talk, change the the topic of this podcast in the middle of the podcast. (laughs) Instead of it being about getting a formal degree, maybe what we want to talk about is this new desire that I've been noticing or the shift that's happening where people are starting to say, I don't think I knew what I thought I knew. How do I know what there is to know? How do I become an expert? And maybe Mm -hmm. what we, people actually want to become experts. This is what I'm understanding. Nobody's like, I'm good with my half level of knowledge that could be hurting people. I'm good with my half level of knowledge that might be helping somebody. People are actually like, how do I learn more? How do I become an expert? And so uh, I'll start by saying that there is a range of ways. Some are more heavy self-study and some are a little less heavy self-study. And maybe we can go through those. But Mm -hmm. importantly, if I had to define an expert, I would say this is somebody who first knows everything that almost everything that there is to know that's been pretty well established in an area. I like things that are pretty well established. They know that really, really well. So, for instance, if you're studying basic car mechanics, the basic things that every mechanic should know. God, you know the hell out of that. You're yeah. not like, wait, so there's an engine? Like, that's not you. You get yeah. every part of it. You know there are different kinds of cars, different kinds of engine, blah, blah, blah. 
but you also know what you don't know and those really should be on the fringes of your your area so maybe you don't understand airplanes very well mm -hmm. maybe you don't understand uh, commercial vehicles but you understand sort of your regular sedans because that you know those giant Mack trucks are a little bit out of your area but you know you know you don't know that yeah and you're not gonna venture there because I don't do Mack trucks I yep. do family cars etc right but you also know what you can't know that in no aerospace no no regular driving none of those areas it's impossible to know this you know what you don't know, you know what you can't know, but what there is to know that's been well established in your area, you know really well. Yeah, I, let's stay in this topic of what's an expert a little longer because I think it's really important is, because I think the term expert can be used um, often and without real consideration as to what the term means. So I wanna ask you, would you say, because I thought it was really interesting that you said an expert needs to have a very good handle on what is already established yeah so by that would you say that to be an expert you really need to have a firm understanding of the literature yeah and the literature may or may not tell us everything there is to know but it tells you what people have been talking about what people have been yeah. thinking about what people have been ruminating on yeah so if i i think of the literature in my purview of it I don't view myself as somebody who's going to the literature for um, a yes or no. I'm not going to literature for recipe or technique specifics. I'm not going to literature the way I go to um, Google how to. Yeah. I go to it more to Wikipedia. Butternut squash. Yeah. Soup. I go to it more like Wikipedia. Like it's not telling me what to do. It's giving me a lot of general things that people think about a topic. Yeah. Um, but it's not a definition for this word kind of thing, sure. right? <clears throat> so, but I do think that it delineates from somebody who has maybe seen a lot of patients that have dysphagia yes you can have a lot of years of experience you can have seen a lot of patients you can have seen a lot of patients in a lot of different settings dealt with a lot of diagnoses but that doesn't necessarily make you an expert right so we're talking about e versus e go on experience <laughs> versus expertise they're not the same thing I like that. So you can have a lot of experience doing something. Experience me doesn't mean that you've accumulated knowledge that builds on it, on it right? Sure. If you are somebody who's been taking tickets at a parking ramp for your whole life and that's all you've ever done, you have maybe 30 years of experience that. Does that mean you know anything beyond that? Maybe, maybe not. Maybe because right. your job had limitations has been so small, you know everything there is to know about it, but there's five things to know. Right. So experience just could mean that you built knowledge and you're both experienced and an expert. Yeah. But I don't think that you can be, that experience definitely means that you have knowledge. So the best thing that I've heard is, do you have 20 years of experience or have you repeated year one 19 times? Right. So you're doing the same thing basically you did in year one, but it's like variations on a theme. Right. And it doesn't mean being able to, um, off the top of your head, cite, you know, steel at all in 2012 says, and pulling a line out of a paper, right? Mm -hmm. It's, it's, we're not unique. It's no different than any other medical specialty. For example, in cardiothoracic surgery, part of the reason that cardiothoracic surgeons are experts is that yes, they've seen and done a lot of surgeries, but they also are very um, grounded and knowledgeable about all of the clinical trials and what the standard um, level of care or standard, standard practice patterns are for certain diagnoses and certain approaches to surgery. So if you have somebody that has a 
needs a coronary artery bypass graft, there has been a lot of clinical trials and research that has shown this is the uh, recommended approach for this type of patient. Yeah. And they know the literature. They know, oh, in a study of a thousand people, this is what has been recommended by the American Thoracic Society. This is what um, the approach is. So it's not just that they did a bunch of surgeries. Right. They are also yeah. grounded so what in what the literature is, is recommending. What you're saying is they have a symbiotic relationship with the literature. Neither thing, neither the literature nor their practice in and of itself is enough. Right. They need to go back and forth with one another, Absolutely. right? So there's your what they know what they're seeing in that patient. It's not like so. This is the example that that Facebook post I had about shoes and trying on shoes. Mm-hmm. So I had that post that I wear a size seven and a half. That's I'm a true size seven and a half. Period. It doesn't mean I ever walk into the store and say, "Give me a size seven and a half and never try it on." You know why? Because right. while there is an industry standard of how many inches seven and a half should be we know that there can be fit depending on the size of the shoe so yes i understand that i'm a seven and a half that's sort of the literature that's pubmed i know what a seven and a half is but i still try it on because right. i want to make sure it's the kind of seven and a half that i can tolerate so these are you're describing people who say look when i open somebody up the literature is going to give me some guidelines and theories and principles that i'm going to follow because they've been pretty well standardized in these cl- cl- clinical trials but this patient is still an individual who might not conform perfectly to what the literature says. So I need to know the literature, but I also need to know how to shift and individualize things for this patient as a clinician. Yeah. And I think the other piece of this that we haven't stated yet that is essential to qualifying as an expert is none of these things matter if you don't have a firm, thorough, complete understanding of anatomy and physiology. If you cannot apply these things to really understanding the sensory motor control of swallowing, the central peripheral nervous system, the muscles, the nerves, how all of these things work together, then it doesn't matter. <laughs> it doesn't matter. So again, it's it's what we talked about in that theory-based practice versus evidence-based practice protocol, which is it's not that you're going to the literature for a recipe. Otherwise, it's recipe-based um, practice. Instead of evidence-based practice, it's recipe-based practice. It's still, right. it's like a higher form of tell me what to do. If you're going, you're going to literature to just say, tell me what to do, you're going for the wrong reason. Yep. The reason you go to the literature, and the, the why I read, is to understand, to, to fulfill the first part of what an expert is, which mm-hmm. is, what are the things that people are talking about? What are the theories? What are the ideas out there? How have they been borne out? What are people are saying that used to be solid that has now changed? Because that's the other thing about the literature. There are a lot of things that people said, no, this is a thing. We know this. And you'll read a lot of papers where the introduction is, it's been well established that. And then years down the line, they go, actually, that theory is kind of changing. We now have this new sure. level of information. So it's also growing. The literature is organic. Yeah. And so it should be changing with you. And if you don't understand how these things have changed over time, then it's difficult to understand. I I mean, think of the vaccine situation where it was like, people get vaccines, people don't question it. And then it was like, no, people are questioning it. Now the literature is fighting to get to where it was to say, people shouldn't be questioning vaccines. So the literature is a growing thing. Absolutely. And um, yeah, I think that's a really important point. I also think that... One of the great aspects of 
I don't know what I was going to say. I lost my train of thought. Okay, so that's I'm not okay. going to make shit up. That's okay. <laughs> you're not going to make shit up because you're an expert and you know what you don't know, which is what you were going to say, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh, I know what I was going to say. I wanted to make the point that one of the things you may have noticed in this podcast, and I don't even know what episode we're on now, but very infrequently do Ianessa and I talk about treatment in the way of, well, if you see this, you should do X. Yeah. Because it's, I thought of it when you mentioned, um, you know, sort of prescription-based therapy or, um, I can't remember the term that you just used, but it's never really the case where oh, we're rec- going to... Recipe. Recipe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Recipe. And on this podcast, we're never giving recipes because it's not that straightforward. Yeah. And I see this, one of the most common things I see is that people say, um... I want to treat the physiologic impairment. I'm going to do my instrumental evaluation. I'm going to identify the um, the impairment that's causing the aspiration or the residue or whatever. And, oh, I identified that impairment. So now I'm going to go to my list and I'm going to see, oh, when I have this impairment, I'm going to do the X treatment. And I think to really be an expert, you have to be able to dig deeper than that because that's never always going to be the case. It's sometimes going to be the mm-hmm. case. It's never always. And I think that if you have a firm understanding of anatomy and physiology, of even understanding medicine, because our patients all have very different diagnoses. So depending on the diagnoses, the course of treatment is going to be very different, even in terms of the treatment that you're prescribing, the dosage, the intensity, the frequency. When to stop. When to stop. <laughs> when to just leave it alone because it's not something we can actually treat. It's, yeah. it's something that needs to recover spontaneously or... All of those things are growing, changing based on your knowledge. Based on your knowledge. And you know, the other thing is that you and I do all the time, which is we might have a research patient, which and we it, the, the studies act like clinical, clinical video fluoroscopies. It's beauty, the beauty of some of our studies. There will be somebody where the literature does not necessarily support that. But because we understand what we're targeting, we can do sort of Mm -hmm. off-label tests of certain uh, postures. But you can justify it based on the physiology and the anatomy. Exactly. And it's, you know, I always think of prescribing treatment is like you're in a courtroom and you have to um, justify it or defend a case, right? Like you have to defend a decision that you make. And it can't just be based on my experience. I've seen, I've had lots of clients yeah. that have ended this way. It, that's not sufficient. That's yeah. not going to be um, They could have been good lots enough. of wrong decisions. Yeah, right? I mean, it, that's, it doesn't mean anything. But if you can take somebody through a pathway in your decision-making tree of why what you know and what's firmly established about anatomy and physiology supports what you're recommending and comparing that with the literature and saying, well, in the literature, they studied... X disease or in the literature they you know you can kind of compare why your recommendation may not jive with that yeah and actually give a description of that and tell a story about it in a way that makes a reader or another therapist getting a report say oh okay that makes sense to me and I see the pathway of your clinical decision making so I want us to give very so let me we should go through three things that I said about what I think an expert is. One is knowing what there is to know in your area. And you mm-hmm. started out by saying that is so important, right? Um, and let's talk about the various levels and ways to get there. As mm-hmm. I started out, yep. 
people want to be experts. People want to be more knowledgeable in the area. People ultimately want to treat people and improve their, their quality of life and their actual physiology. And people want to know the various ways they can do that anywhere from reading more papers to actually getting a degree, right? Mm -hmm. So uh, um, if I had to jump in with something that's really important and probably pretty darn obvious about swallowing or deglutition specifically and how you become a researcher is whether you do it self-study or whether you get a PhD, it's going to be the research literature that best covers what we have established mm -hmm. what we thought we established but now we're changing our mind on what we have no clue about and why and how those things were studied that to me is the best best way to do it and it could be that you're reading the papers yourself it could be that you have sort of at hopkins we had that gulp group where people would pull a paper and talk it could very well be that you have people who uh, we had dysphagia grand rounds rinky and i where we guide people through a paper it could be that you're going to meetings and talking to the actual researchers but it could also be that you're getting a degree someplace mm -hmm. um, where you it could be a clinical doctorate where they actually have research-based discussions and hopefully if you're getting a PhD you are encouraged to take a very deep dive into the literature and you have opportunities in journal clubs etc to talk to your mentor about these studies. I really like that you call it a research degree and the reason is that I get a lot of inquiries from clinicians who want to learn more about swallowing and anatomy and physiology and the mechanism of swallowing and they think that in order to do that they have to get a phd because i think there's a misconception that the phd is just four years of studying swallowing in like a textbook and getting these beautiful you know dysphagia um part six course and that's not the case at all and I think when you called it a research degree, I was like, oh, that's such a perfect, we need to call it that more often because the research degree or the PhD is teaching you how to do research. Or how to be a scientist. And how to be a scientist to ask these questions and the deep diving into the mechanism of swallowing and anatomy and physiology, you're going to get through reading the literature that's going to help but a lot of it in your phd most of it in your phd is actually self-study mm -hmm. and saying in order to ask questions about swallowing i need to understand swallowing and you yeah. learn that very quickly in your phd yeah. that you um that you need to take it upon yourself to learn these things and you're not going to be spoon-fed you're not going to take dysphagia courses you're going to take courses in statistics and research methods and rehab theory and maybe a course on how um adaptations to cardiovascular exercise like things like that but it's not four years of eight dysphagia courses so what you're saying is it's not a certificate in an area so you know how you can get those sort of nighttime certificates in like an mba and it's all about business a research degree it's supposed to teach you how to do research, how to be a scientist. Now you have to pick a topic because yep. you can't do a degree on science, right? You can't do a dissertation topic on the topic of science. You tend to decide, okay, I'm really interested in research and this aspect of it, it could be anywhere from dysphagia to physics. You know what I mean? It could mm -hmm. be all kinds of to topics. Um, uh, the point is that you are 
you should come out knowing how to do science because a lot of people switch their areas of interest. They start out in one area and then they move to another area. I could decide I really want to study ocular movements. I really want to study skin grafts. And if I write an amazing grant and really align myself with the experts there, I can switch topics whenever I'm ready. Sure. That's because I'm a scientist who understands how science works. All I have to do is tag on to that particular physiology I don't know about well. But the principles of science and research are pretty, pretty um, ubiquitous. There are a lot of things that I can talk to almost any scientist about and we'll be like, yeah, I totally get that. Yeah, yeah. So that's um, that's an important distinction that a PhD is a research degree and you decide what, what thing you want to research. It's not a degree on being an expert in swallowing or being an expert in that other area. Yes. So um, that is a aerial view of the PhD, which we'll dive a little bit more into later. And I want, to put, I want to put something in the queue, which is for later on, one thing you won't get in any, I just went anywhere from reading the literature by yourself and all the things from there to doing, to getting a research degree. It's the research degree's job to teach you how to think. Yeah. You may or may not get that in any other, or to uh, hone in on how you should be thinking or how you should mm -hmm. be per perceiving things differently. Most people who come into uh, my lab or any lab and they've been clinicians say oh my gosh this is a totally different way of thinking yeah. it's neither better nor worse it's just scientific thinking yeah it's more akin in my opinion to the approach engineering degrees take where they teach you how to problem solve that they can't possibly I mean when you're an engineer you're having to create new devices and constantly innovate what is already known to create something that's unknown or to answer and solve a problem through technology or through biomedical, um, you know, through biomedical science to create something that's new. And to do that, you have to know what the problem is and how to problem solve it. Mm -hmm. And in engineering programs, they teach you a lot more about how to problem solve than they yeah. do about so this is what you how just, to solve every yes. problem. And so I just want, exactly, oh, I love that. They teach you how to problem solve, not how to solve every problem. This is the, this is, goes back, and I'm gonna gripe here, and I know I'm going off topic. The biggest problem that I think people have anywhere along this reading the literature, finding someone to talk to, all the levels I talked about for becoming more aware of the, what we know as a field is, ultimately that if you know how to think you can get through some of these things a bit better yeah. you should we should have this is the you could call it critical thinking but it, it's really scientific thinking right mm -hmm. if you have critical thinking slash scientific thinking you're made aware of how we approach things which is mm -hmm. almost never saying you've proved something you know how detrimental that is for a scientist to go on a stage and go so we have proven without right. a doubt that this yeah. is the case. You are going to get railroaded. Mm -hmm. Scientists, and that's the nature of this podcast, which is what you've said. If you're listening to this podcast still and you're not frustrated, it's because you are not, you've realized we're not, they're not going to answer any one specific question. Sure. They're going to suggest how I approach it and force me to do some of the work as well. Yeah. And that's what science is. Your mentor, a really good mentor is not just going to tell you everything. They're yeah. going to say, so what makes you come to that conclusion? You do more self-discovery about how you process things to the point where you obsess over it. I mean, you were just there, yeah, right? Yeah, I have and a you really funny story yourself, to highlight this. You think yeah. you know what you're talking about. People come in guns a-blazing with things that are happening. You get shut down. I will never forget the times that happened to me at the NIH. Yeah. 
I am gonna highlight this with a story and you may not remember this, but um, I think the misconception about researchers is from a clinical perspective is that the difference between a researcher and a clinician is that a say in dysphagia there's 10,000 problems yeah right this is just for ease of numbers there's 10,000 problems and I think as a clinician there aren't wait there aren't 99 problems in the yes. wait this ain't one <laughs> yeah. what I was like when is that gonna happen I know I know I'll try to weave that in okay um, they say that in dysphagia there's 10,000 problems and the misconception is that somebody with a PhD has the answers to 9,000 of them and a clinician who hasn't been able to devote four years to figuring out those other problems, maybe has the answer to a thousand of them. Mm -hmm. So that's, I think, often why as when you get a PhD, you get people coming up to you with a really specific question because they just assume that you have the answer to it, that you had four years to figure out the answers to all these problems. So let me just access that. You're the library. And I remember my first semester of my PhD because I sort of, I mean, I'm, Hindsight's twenty twenty, right? Like I can see more clearly now, but I think I, without really being aware of it, thought that that was the case. And I have all these questions, and I just haven't had time as a clinician to be able to answer them. I'm gonna have four years. I'm going to, in those four years, find the answers to the other eight thousand problems that I don't know the answer to, but that I think all these PhDs who have had time mm-hmm. to devote to this have all these answers. So I remember. One of the first things I did in the first few weeks in my PhD was I came to your office and with a flash drive, I don't know if you remember this, and I was like, okay, can you give me from your um, from your EndNote, which is a application that you use to sort of aggregate um, and organize all the research literature, you can save different articles and put them in different topics. And I said, give me all the articles that you've read that I need to read so that I can have the answers to these <laughs> So I problems. can download your brain Yeah, no, basically, it was just like, I didn't have time to read these as a clinician, so I'm, like, what are all the, like, what are your top 100 papers that I need mm-hmm. to read? And then I'll be smart and know yeah. some answers to these questions, and you quickly realize that, boy, that is not how it works no. <laughs> at no, in all. In fact, what you end up coming out with, a, with after a research degree is, yes, you end up by virtue of reading literature, getting more expertise in terms of what we know, what the topics are, what people Mm -hmm. are thinking about, what has been researched, what hasn't been researched, what we have a firm handle on, what we don't have a firm handle on, right? Right. Like the idea that like, this this sounds really basic, but the idea that the UES opens in every normal swallow, people aren't going, are we still, have we decided that that's a thing? You know why we know that? Because people kept finding it every single time in healthy people. It just kept opening. So no one goes, where's the study on the UE? Someone told me it doesn't open. Is there a study on this? No, there's not a study on that. There's not a study to prove our goal is to show that the UES opens in every normal swallow. You know why? Because when you read it, you grasp this idea that it's assumed, it's already known. And so on one hand, you have those kinds of things. But the other thing that the, that you don't get, which is what you're describing, is yes, you let's say you read my top 100 papers and you go, sounds like they're all saying this. But you'll get that conclusion. But it, what you should have on your own, if you are a person who's a thinking person in the scientific realm, is it was they, they were studying various ways. Yeah. No, there wasn't one perfect way to study. They all had caveats in this conclusion, right. and they never stated strongly anything definite. They all said what the limitations were, and these are the things that we still can't answer. And in fact, here are some critiques for this. And in science, critiquing is literally essential to the job. Yeah. 
it is essential to the job. It is not the essential essential to the job in the clinical world where you're constantly critiquing mm-hmm. to show, like, why'd you do this to this patient? Why'd you do this to this patient? And so the learning process is very different yep. in one area versus the other. Absolutely. So it really does give you the tools to be able to, I think as a clinician, when I read a research paper, it was kind of skimming for that definitive statement yeah. like you kind of read the introduction you like gloss over the methods yeah because you're like you're like so what do i give do? me the meat and potatoes yeah and you you are looking at the results and you're looking at the discussion and you're just looking for that statement that validates what you're already looking for yeah you know and i think what the value is in the research degree is to have the tools to critically appraise the literature to know uh, what to take from it, how to apply it in certain situations and not in other situations, what the limitations are, and even how to replicate and use the tools of designing a good study and, and controlling for um, certain variables to be able to answer questions yourself. Yeah. To and, and so... so we, oh my God, that was that's another podcast topic, which is clinicians learning how to collect their own data based on what they do in the clinical sure. world to say, yeah, what I'm doing is working mm-hmm. or not, and not requiring the literature to do that for you because it's right. not possible. But um, ultimately, uh, it sounds like we agree that one part that's really important is this idea of separating experience and expertise. They're mm-hmm. not the same thing. They can overlap, but there's no guarantee that experience leads to expertise. Sure. And let's be clear that we really don't have a good measure of truly delineating that currently in our field, in our field. And I know that Ash has come out with these, with these competencies, et cetera, but how do we enforce those and who decided that those going into the future will be exactly what's needed? We're still working on that. Yeah. And it, it, it is frustrating to me sometimes when I, um, I'll see somebody be introduced and they'll say, blah, 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 is an expert in swallowing. They've worked in this population for 20 years. They have um, worked in all these different settings. And they list all these criteria that don't actually make somebody an expert. Well, you see, that's exactly it. And that's not just our field. I hear that in other areas. But I will say this. When I um, first got introduced into this world of these groups on Facebook, which I had no clue existed because Facebook was purely social for me. Sure. Um, people kept introducing me as a swallowing expert and I kept going, none of us call ourselves that. There's right. no researcher who calls himself a swallowing expert, but the clinicians kept saying, she's a swallowing expert, blah, blah, blah. And I always felt really weird about that. I'm like, sure. but then I realized if we define expert the way I do it, then I'm okay with it, which mm-hmm. is I really understand the stuff that's out there. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying there's something that I've read years ago and I forgot, oh, right, 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 I forgot about that. Right. But I know I can catch up on those little things. The things that I don't know are so on the margins of what is deglutition that I feel okay with that, mm-hmm. right? But I also learn, and this takes us to the next thing, it's about what we don't know or what we know we right. can't know. Yeah. What we don't know, for me, like I was saying, it's it's nothing that's really within the main core of dysphagia. Maybe it's more about the, the you know, the bases of neuroplasticity at the basic science level. Maybe it's more about the esophagus, which is something that I really haven't spent a lot of time on. It's definitely with peds. Mm-hmm. I would never just jump in and be like, yep, because I got adults, I get peds. I know I right. don't know that. I know that it's not that I can't know it. Right. I just don't know it. And it's because I really haven't pursued it as much. Sure. But I also know what I can't know. 
So when we talk about things, and when I say we can't know, I mean no one can know this right now. It's not possible. Right. This information is not there. There is no way right now for us to detail the exact and precise movements of the tongue during a swallow. No such measure exists. Right. Video fluoroscopy will never tell us that in a, in a um, 4D in, or 3D or any type way. And fees will never tell us. Looking at it will never tell us. We have no real clue. And that's just because science has not given us an imaging technique to yep. do it. MRI is probably the closest thing, but it's still not completely um, there yet. Right. So I know what we can't know. And so when I talk about those things, I'm very careful to say these data suggest it. Uh, there have been indications that. And that's what I think makes people experts is sure. that they are okay to say nobody know that no one can know, know that can no one can know that and if anyone's definitely definitively says that then you know they're actually not experts because they suggested we know something that's sure. impossible to know sure so um let's just talk briefly because i do want to get into um some detail about if you are thinking about a PhD, I, I really want to do some myth busting and I want to talk about like nice. some practical steps that you can take and what the reality is of financially and logistically um, about getting a PhD. So if you're really into hearing about that, it's coming. Yeah. Let's talk real quickly about um, we had stratified the three categories. Let's start first with the clinician who has decided, I don't want to get a PhD, I don't want to get a clinical doctorate, but I do want to know more. Mm -hmm. What are some practical things that um, that they can do to learn more about swallowing, to better understand um, how to best apply treatments, how to best manage patients, um, things of that nature? So I think I'll start. Yeah, I'm <laughs> like, uh, okay. Um, I think the best thing that you can do, this is my own personal opinion, I think the best thing that you can do for yourself is to better understand anatomy and physiology. I think that the stronger foundation that you have in that is going to um, help you exponentially in understanding why a treatment wouldn't, would not work, why it doesn't make sense to apply that treatment to that, that disorder, and how can they do that. I think one route that I have been taking recently, I'll speak to my own experience, is there is a website called edX Courses, and um, what it is, is it's universities like Harvard, MIT, um, I think Columbia, there's a bunch of different universities that offer their courses online for free, and you sign up for a course, and you they post the video, the notes, they have quizzes, they have all sorts of different stuff that you can choose a topic and deep dive into it a little bit more. For speech pathologists, some great courses that you can take is they'll have courses on just learning more about the central and peripheral nervous system, the sensory and motor pathways, understanding muscle physiology, understanding, um, uh, whatever, and anything that's more related to better understanding. Larger systems like larger respiration, system, respiration, cardiology, that type of thing. Exactly. So in my postdoc right now, I'm actually focusing on studying respiratory physiology. And uh, there are aspects of studying respiratory physiology that I am lacking. For example, we're... Um, I, part of my research right now is focused a lot on spinal cord injury, and so I am taking a couple of courses through edX to learn more about 
the corticospinal tract and understanding how the disease mechanism occurs in spinal cord injury, understanding respiratory physiology and understanding all these aspects that I don't get in formal courses in a postdoc, but I need to self-study. And it's been really tremendous in helping me understand why when a patient has a certain respiratory disorder or what's actually happening with a spinal cord injury, I can understand the physiology of what's happening, not just, oh, well, after a spinal cord injury, people have sensory motor impairments, yeah, which is pretty basic. Right. But I think in general, as speech pathologists, we have a very basic understanding of just sensory and motor impairments that occur well, with our we patients. We don't understand the central nervous peripheral, sens- uh, the CNS and PNS that well in general, right? In general, yeah. correct. But I think if you want to understand that a little better, I think that that's a great place to start to really understand why treatment for a peripheral nervous system disorder is going to be very different than a central nervous system disorder. Right. And that actually has direct relevance to what we do. Absolutely. Are we talking about... Uh, someone who's been in a car accident, who's had peripheral trauma, or are you talking about a stroke? Yeah, you know, very, and very. Different. Why would why would neuroplasticity probably be better for one group versus the sure. other? Sure, exactly. Um, the other practical piece of advice that I would give <laughs> is you can glean a lot of very valuable information in understanding swallowing physiology better by reading um, research articles and really focusing on the introduction of a lot of research articles that will give. Um, a lot of detailed information with references about how the swallowing mechanism works. And then go back and and read those papers. And go back and read those papers. But here's a caveat there. And I'm working with uh, someone, I'm working with somebody now, um, a doctoral student on a paper on Chintuck. Mm -hmm. And um, she's realizing that she goes to these papers and she's like, okay, in the introduction, it says something like, the Chintuck is used for... And then they'll cite something. But what they cite never tested that. Right. It'll it'll be like a textbook where someone just said, this is what you do it for. It's not based on any research. Right. So you go back and you read those papers that they cite. And then you read those papers that they cite. Right. And you, it, once you've gone down the rabbit hole and you realize you're so deep that you're now looking at studies on eyebrow hair and how it grows, yeah. then, you are, then you are officially where you should be. Yeah. When you start going down these rabbit holes of papers and papers and papers, you're going deep and that's actually a good thing. Because you're not going... You're not looking for a particular answer. You're looking for an understanding of what we know, and that's a very different quest. Yeah. But your other point was, you said one thing that you want to start with is just understanding the mechanism. Um, We've we've preached that over and over again. Um, What was the other other thing that you were... About just taking... Like, there's just such... We live in a different world where the accessibility to online resources, Mm -hmm. to understand stuff that is really just sort of foundational knowledge about Mm -hmm. how um, the human body functions, Mm -hmm. which we don't get any of in our formal training in speech pathology, and we should. Yeah. That's a whole different... So what can we do about if we're going to... So we talked about the formal stuff a lot. We didn't talk about the clinical doctorate that much, and maybe we're going to have to pick up with somebody else to sort of get into that, and Mm -hmm. I'd love to do that more. Um, But... What what can we do about people who want to go to CEU courses where they are being challenged and not being told stuff they already know? Um, I guess these are so these to me are the the clinicians who've already 
gone. They do the ASH yeah. every year. They do the DRS every year. They sure. read the literature. And they don't want to get a research degree. Mm-hmm. Um, my opinion is that there is you're sort of in this sort of no man's land, yeah. right? And I still think conversations are way to go. Mm-hmm. I will never discount the times that I've gone to meetings and had conversations with people about their talks. Sure. And had people talk to me about my talks, and I know that's not easy for everybody. Yep. But simply sending an email and having a conversation with a scientist to get clarification is a good way to go. You can't be too worried about whether your question is dumb and those kinds of things. You just have to go looking to seek the knowledge. But the kinds of questions, and I'm going to put this out there, we there are questions that scientists like, there are questions that scientists hate at the end of their talk. The questions we hate are when people come up and they go, I have a patient who, and you're like, oh my God, here we go. Yeah. They're going to detail their patient for because five minutes. Because they think minutes. that you have 8,000 answers to the yeah. 10,000 problems. This is my point. They think we actually know the specific answer and they're coming yeah. to us to say, what treatment do I use? And we won't be able to give them that. Um, and also, I can't know your patient better than you do. I mean, you've been working with this person for how long? I know the system well, but I can't put the two together. You need to know the system better to answer that specific question about your patient. And the kinds of questions we do like, then I'll let you go and we can wrap up, are the questions where you're just trying to understand the theories, the ideas, the outcomes better. Not because you need a thing on Monday morning to stick on a patient, but because you want to understand how things work. We really love to talk about that. Yeah, yeah. I think the conversations is just critical. And I think that's it's the best way. It's the most efficient way. And it it's efficient because you really can just get straight to... Um, you can get straight to the point and really figure out very quickly where your gap in knowledge is and how mm-hmm. to fill that gap. And you basically, you, you walk away understanding it more because it's a conversation you had, not something you read, which sometimes can't, you know, you don't remember that well. Yeah, and... and you know, you do, if you're going to ask somebody a question, you do the work on, on your end to say, I, I have looked into XYZ. I understand this. What I don't understand is this. Yeah. And I, I want to give an example because it, I think it's a great example of, of how to model this is um, I recently got an email from a speech pathologist at Ohio State University. Her name's Shana McGrath. And she um, emailed me out of the blue. I don't, I didn't know who this clinician was. And she emailed me, um, with a question. She said on, she had listened to our recent podcast on laryngeal vestibule closure. And it also read an article that we published on kinematic feedback using video fluoroscopy. And in this email, she wanted to understand a little bit more about, um, incorporating temporal measures into her report writing she had questions about variability between swallows and thinking about treatment for any of these temporal temporal measures. Um, and she went on to say, you know, the variability in timing is a challenge. I've trained under video fluoroscopy. And I. she wanted to know more about how generalization occurs and using these treatments. And it was a very well thought out question that led to a phone conversation that we had Um, where we talked on the phone for probably an hour. And it was one of those conversations where I felt like this is a clinician who has really done her due diligence to understand the research literature 
She has listened to podcasts. She's applying it to her patients and just wants to bridge the gap and learn a little bit more information. And the best way she knew to do that was to have a conversation about it. Yeah, but you were also excited to have this conversation because it was an email. It wasn't an email saying, can you tell me what to do? Yes. It was, I want to understand this better. And then, you you know what? Every time I've had those conversations similar to the one you're talking about here with um, Shayna is I learn things too. Yes. Or I solidify or crystallize concepts because I want to know how what I'm saying translates to the clinical world, Mm -hmm. to the mind of someone who's been a clinician primarily so that I can go, oh, that's a unique way of looking at that. I hadn't thought of that. Yeah. And it wasn't a conversation of, oh, well, in these patients I do X and in this patient I do Y. And here's my recipe for, based on my knowledge, it was a very theoretical conversation about how we should be applying treatment and how we use temporal measures and how to approach video fluoroscopy in a different way. And it was a very broad-based conversation that was rooted in physiology. We couldn't have had this conversation if she didn't have a firm Mm -hmm. understanding of physiology because we would have been stuck, Mm -hmm. you know? And I just thought that it was such a great example of if you're in that category of a clinician that wants to learn more when you go to drs talk to yeah um researchers talk to other clinicians Ooh, ooh, ooh. this makes me think of something that i've been planning for a while which is so our meetings tend to be more of us talking and less of um people having the opportunity to talk yeah and i think in because we tend to model the classroom where it's the professor talking all the time yeah there need to be more conversations yeah and you get to discover this more and you're forced into it as a scientist. You're yeah. forced to go and go up to people and have a conversation. You're forced to lead these discussions. Mm-hmm. And then you become a teacher or a professor and you're doing it again. And you're on the other side. Now you're doing all the talking. Yeah. But conversations are really hard to have. And I suspect that's why people like this podcast because mm-hmm. they're listening to conversation. Right. But oftentimes I, think, I can imagine them on the treadmill or in their car either fist pumping or furrowing their brows like, I don't think that way, and wanting to be part of the conversation. Yeah. So I'm working um, quietly on um, devising a plan for ways for there to be conversations around these topics, similar mm-hmm. to this podcast, like between two ferns, perhaps. Not yeah. quite. Not quite, but <laughs> I know. <laughs> but just this idea where there are actually real conversations with clinicians as opposed to just either listening to scientists talk, yeah. which is what they're doing with us, or listening to one scientist talk at them. Yeah. Or they're talking among themselves and wanting to know, well, I would love to have someone who knows a little bit more about this talk to us. Yeah. So, yeah. I've heard many, Coming soon. Yeah, I've heard many clinicians say that when in listening to us, because we specifically do not script anything that we talk about. We don't even come up with an outline. We don't... We, we didn't just, even come up with a topic clearly no. for this one because we're not talking about what we said we're going to talk yeah, about. Yeah, we just hit... We just hit play and we specifically, we don't even, we don't even before we hit record, we don't even say these are the things that we want to talk about. We just go, which is why we're like really off the rails right now and kind of on a tangent, but that's okay. Cause that's the point. But I've heard many clinicians say that they found themselves like trying to interrupt us and yeah. then they realize that they're in their bar, <laughs> because, you know? And that's really? the point is that like you learn through those, um, those engaging, active learning, active learning. Um, so that would be, um, that would definitely be... You know what be, we need to do one year? We need to submit like an ASHA proposal where it's about the... like It's like a podcast style proposal yes. where it's not like, you know, this boring sort of 
these are the slides I'm going to have. This yeah. is like, no, this is the stuff we're going to talk about. It's going to be panel based and people are going to be able to just talk about whatever or say in your podcast on this day, you said this. And be like, I did shoot. Yeah. Sorry. It would be cool too, to have like random clinicians that we don't know who like say they want to be on the podcast and just let them come with questions and like yeah. guide the topic. And we just talk about Ooh, stuff. We can do an ask me anything. That would be cool. Yeah. That would be fun. And just All have right. a conversation. Let's make that happen. Yeah, let's do it. Cool. Okay. So last, so let's move on to, um, 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 go ahead. No, we'll move on to what? What were you going to say? I was just going to say we've kind of um, exhausted the idea of the clinician who doesn't want to go onto formal training. And maybe we should just touch briefly upon the um, the other two oh, avenues, which is the, um, the clinical doctorate, which um, perhaps I, we can have somebody on later who's yeah, gotten a clinical I doctorate. Do but what do. I will say about mm-hmm. it is just emphasizing that the clinical doctorate is not a research degree. Yeah. You do not learn about, um, you, you don't, with a PhD, you really sort of get your, quote, license to be mm-hmm. able to conduct research, mm-hmm. and that's not really the um, the point of the clinical doctor. I do know you get a little bit of research training. You can, and every program is different. Some sure. maybe emphasize it more than others. Exactly. But I do, I think you make a good point. We probably, I would love to have... Um, a conversation about that with people who are maybe on the programmatic side so they actually run one and someone who's just recently got one sure yeah yeah, maybe we could table that yeah um and then there's the avenue of the phd which we talked a little bit in theory about what the phd is um and perhaps we can talk now about some practical steps towards obtaining your phd and and um Doing some myth busting, or do we want to save that for maybe like a part I wonder, two? I wonder if we should save it for a part two because I think we just open up this idea of how to obtain knowledge, what knowledge is, what an expert yep. is. We started out there, but I don't even think you can jump to so you want to get a PhD right now because we it's all a PhD is a knowledge seeking and thing and. Yeah. Not everyone wants to get a PhD, but everybody wants more knowledge. Sure. So I yeah. think that's why we got off the tan- tangent. We were supposed to talk about it. They were like, wait, I know, let's I talk know. about this idea of obtaining knowledge. But I do, I do think Maybe we should. Yeah, we should do a part two because I do think there are a lot of people oh, out yeah. there that want to get a PhD, but they think that they can't afford it. Yeah. Which is not true. Yeah. They think that um, it's too much. It's going to take too long. There's a lot of misconceptions about it that you have to abandon things that you love in order to sell your soul to research and that is not true and there's a lot of things going on people are saying these things well yeah i think that people think that if you want to get a phd then you abandon your clinical no not um, at all you enhance it i think oh 100 percent. and you can do both you know you don't have to stop seeing patients um so that's a myth and i I think the financial piece i'd really love to deep dive into because that's a huge misconception yeah Yeah. um cool well let's Let's definitely make this a part two. So we're talking about experience versus expert and how to obtain knowledge. This is going to be part one. We've just decided on the fly we're going to have a part two. Um, I would love to, you guys sent a lot of emails and comments in the last podcast about things we should talk about. Um, If you have anything to add on this one, we could absolutely do that. And I love your idea, Alicia, of having some sort of an ask me anything type thing. So we'll follow up with that. Thanks for listening, guys. And um, keep seeking knowledge. Thank you.